In this episode, we're talking to Hannah Sutton, an Australian painter who is undergoing studies in classical realism at the Florence Academy of Art in Italy. Hannah has the most remarkable story and I'm so excited to share it with you. If you're trying to promote your brand but stuck finding the right words, this is the podcast for you. Get your weekly inspiration on all things storytelling, creativity, branding, and so much more. I share inspiring stories, as well as tips and tricks on how to make your words work out in the world. And if you like free stuff, I've got you covered there too. Head to therightremark.com to steal my marketing secrets. You're listening to The Right Remark Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Right Remark podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Barrington, and today it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to an incredibly inspiring Australian artist by the name of Hannah Sutton. Hannah has such an incredible story. She is currently studying at the Florence Academy of Art in Italy undergoing studies in classical realism. She left her life in Melbourne to train for three years in this very much lost, forgotten art of pre-19th century oil painting. She works from life primarily painting using oil paints or charcoal, and she uses the traditional materials and techniques of painting that the European masters of the 19th century used. So very, very incredible. Now today I'm chatting with Hannah all about how she has come to be studying at this absolutely renowned school of art in pursuit of her creativity. So let's dive in. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Vanessa. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm so excited for our conversation today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Hannah, you have such an incredible story (laughs) to share today and I would love for you to share a little bit with my listeners about how you came to be studying at the Florence Academy of Art. This journey that I'm on started quite a few years ago. I'm originally from Melbourne and I have been living in Florence for the last three years in an intensive classical art course doing painting over here in Florence. It all started when I saw a drawing, a classical drawing that a friend of mine showed me quite a few years back. He had just come back on a journey of his own from Florence, training in classical drawing and painting at the Florence Academy. And when I saw his drawing, I just thought it just blew my mind. I didn't think anybody ever could draw like this anymore. I thought when you go to a museum in Europe and we've all been to those museums and we wonder why can't people draw and paint like this anymore? I thought it was very much a lost art, but as it turned out, it was very much alive in Florence and still being taught. So after seeing this drawing, it was called, this drawing's called the Belvedere Torso and it's, it's part of the training program here. You have, to, you have to do this really, really difficult classical drawing in order to get through this part of the course. When I saw that drawing, I thought I made a promise to myself to find out how to draw like that. And it started on a very slow, it took me years to kind of admit it in the open and years of planning and working towards this goal. But yeah, three years ago, I I moved my whole life 
over to Florence in order to pursue this specific kind of, of classical training. It's so incredible. And because you were working at the time as a graphic designer, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've been in the creative field for over 10 years now. And I was in Melbourne working in a design studio. And it's beautiful work. It's very creative work. And I love it. I love designing and I loved illustrating and, and being creative. But um, you know how when you're a little kid, you all of us maybe are artists as children. We all draw, we all paint, but that never left. And so mm. I wanted that very badly for myself in my adult life. Amazing. And so tell me a little bit about classical realism because, you know, we've had a brief conversation about this just a short while ago, a couple of weeks ago, and you were explaining to me this is not a common thing for artists or painters to learn, right? No. You know, we all maybe have this feeling when we go into an art gallery these days, and I think the joke's pretty common. You kind of walk in and you're like, oh, my daughter could do that, or I could I could paint that. <laughs> there's this kind of, there's been a push towards abstraction mm. in, in the art world. And classical realism is a rebirth of the old techniques that were used kind of pre-19th century. So think Velasquez, think Soroya or Singer Sargent, or even you could go up to what birthed like early Impressionism that we love, but we're thinking about Van Dyck and Rembrandt, those kinds of masters of hundreds of years ago. It is taking that very, very old style training Mm. That basically died out in the Paris academies in the 19th century and reteaching it again. It's not the kind of course, it's not the kind of method that takes very well to, you know, today's universities. It's like a very intensive method, but you're strictly painting from life under natural north light conditions, or in Australia, that's south lighting conditions. So gentle, natural light in the studio. You are mixing your own paints. You are preparing your own materials by hand. So that, all that's very old school. And classical realism is specifically painting from life using the sight size method. So everything you're painting, you fit visually into the field of the canvas. And I don't know if I can explain that very well. <laughs> with words, but you have to be able to fit whatever you're painting in life onto your canvas and paint it the same scale. Oh, wow. Uh, and yeah, so you use, you use string, you use mirrors, you use your eye flicking backwards and forwards, but you fit like the person, the portrait, the figure, uh, the still life in the same scale onto your canvas. So you, you are watching it. You are standing still hours and hours a day observing the sitter. So if you were sitting with me and I was painting your portrait in a classical way, we would set up the lighting in the studio and your position exactly the same every single day for three hours, which is about as long as the light will hold in the same mm. kind of way. And you would have to hold that pose perfectly for me and I would be painting it using a very specific set of steps in order to render your portrait. And the beautiful thing that happens with that style of painting is that over time and over that observation, you're able to get something that is more real. You breathe a lot of life into it that 
you know, let's say a photo just couldn't capture or it wouldn't work if you were maybe painting from a photograph, but it has a lot of soul in it, this kind of painting. Surely that takes an incredible amount of discipline and patience. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it kind of breaks people. <laughs> it's, it's, that sounds a bit I, scary. I, there's a lot of you. <laughs> Have you seen the film Whiplash <laughs> or like Black Swan? How like these artists like are throwing themselves into their craft in a very obsessive way, and it uh, yeah, it takes you have to you have to be standing up for six to eight hours a day, it's like observing, wow. and and it's uh, it's very objective art. At this level of training, you can get it wrong. You can get so many things wrong, and it's it's very arguable like what you have wrong, and so that's the hard part. You leave your ego at the door. <laughs> mm, mm. You, you you just you throw away your ego and your pride in what you do because yeah sure you might be talented you might be able to draw whatever it doesn't mean anything here if you if you don't know anatomy if I can't get the features of your face right if I'm painting your portrait it's wrong that's the thing we all know if somebody's done tried to do a realistic painting and it's wrong we all know innately that it's wrong it doesn't look right to mm. us even mm. if we're not trained we're all trained in that, in in realism, in that in that respect. It's it's either convincing or it's not. And so, you know, four times a day we have an instructor come up to us while we're training in this method, and they will give us a critique that will kind of tear the painting apart. <laughs> oh, really <laughs> <Super> helpful. <laughs> yeah, they'll just be like, oh well, it's a beautiful thing. It's a really positive thing tearing it apart. But, you know, you'll get this kind of feedback that you'll never get if you're painting yourself in the studio. Because if you're painting, we've all probably done this before, we might be drawing, we're like, that's a pretty good drawing. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> or not, not here. It's uh, You'll be working on a painting, you'll be like, this is going pretty well, actually. And then, you know, the instructor will come and they'll be like, well, uh, the anatomy is off. You know, nobody has clavicles that long and uh, nobody has a hip that's that far down and the pelvis isn't rotated correctly or, you know, wow. that's uh, the lighting effect. It's impossible for a single light source to be brighter this far down the body than it is on the top. Wow. So <laughs> go, go away and paint a sphere for a week and figure yeah. that out, you know, wow. <laughs> because you don't know how to paint light. So it's, uh, it's really, it's really objective. It's not just, um, nobody ever says around here, like, oh, I really like that. You know, it's not, it's not about what you like. It's about whether it, it, it is definitely, there is a ruler about right or wrong and it can be measured. And this is what I like about this art for specifically, not about the art, but about the method of training, because it, it's, for me, that, that's the whole reason I'm here. It's that I want to paint as realistically as possible and from life. And so, yeah, that's what makes it really hard. It sounds absolutely torturous, and Honestly, <laughs> it does. But, you know... Maybe masochists around here. <laughs> <laughs> look, creativity can be torturous at times, though, can't it? Totally, yeah. So tell me about... How did you, from that dream of, yep, I want to go and study at the Florence Academy of Art and seeing that style of painting and being very interested in it and learning and teaching and practicing yourself, how did you actually get into this school? Like, how does that come about? It's a pretty cool process. You apply with five pieces 
And you basically just send in your name and your contact details and you send in five five pieces of your work and they judge it from that and they're asking to see. So it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, what your background is, you have to kind of make a statement to them that you're willing to commit to the course. And, yeah, it's not like a university in that respect that you have to sort of prove that you, you know, I have an enter score of 99.9, therefore I can get into anything. It's not like that. The works speak for itself, speak for themselves. Mm. So it took me a year and a half. I started training in the site size method. I started working from life. I would bang on the door of this very kind artist in Australia called Richard Payne and I'd, I'd just rock up at his studio and he very kindly taught me this this method and I would just come to his place every weekend and he would and I'd arrange a model <laughs> and I'd drive out to Dalesford and and we would we would draw for the weekend and it took me a year and a half of drawing and a lot of paid models and things like that to try and learn and then I had enough pieces to sort of put in an application you don't have to make it that hard on yourself <laughs> but that's what I did and so wow. yeah wow. it took me a year and a half to apply to to figure out the portfolio to apply. So it was a really long process for me. But mm. yeah, you, it's based on how committed you are and that comes out in your work. So are there any other Australians at the school? Yeah, there's, there's a few. I have a, a couple of friends currently in their third year as well. Troy Ajiros, who is in Melbourne. He's painting in lockdown yeah. <laughs> as we speak. Yeah. Uh, and he, he has a lot of experience. So you should check him out. And Rachel Pienel, who's from Brisbane, is with me. So, yeah, actually a lot of Australians. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. The there's a, yeah, there's a whole slew of us. And I think it's because there's no place in Australia that really teach. There's Julian Ashton in, in Sydney that does teach the site size technique, but there are very, very few places that really teach it this intensively. Mm. In, in fact, there are no places in Australia that teach it intensively, and that's why... Aussies make the pilgrimage to Florence. Oh, wow. And so what's it like to study at this school? You know, I'm, I'm remembering Black Swan and the, the intensive <laughs> training. What does, it, what, what does a typical day look like for you? I get up pretty early, as you do when you're training. And I'm at school at the academy at 8am mixing a palette. So it takes me a really long time. Like I grind my own lead white paint and premix what we call a value string. I premix all my flesh tones and the other colours on the palette that I need to mix. But that mixing, that preparation, like making sure my canvas is prepped, making sure, you know, everything is is properly set up and, and I, you know, wheeling all of my stuff into the into the correct studio room happens about an hour or 45 minutes before the model might be posing or before I'm, I'm painting something. So that preparation is very, it's kind of religious. It's a, I remember what about instructors telling us to come in that early and stretch and meditate kind of thing, like, mm. like, like stretch and loosen up your body and breathe and, and then mix your palate and then, and then you're ready, like a be still before, because it's about, it's weird in a day like this, where we're all rushing around, you know, in 2020, or at least we were rushing around. <laughs> now we're kind of rushing in one room, but, 
but it's stressful and we don't have time to think half of the time. And here I am like at the mercy of whatever's in front of me, observing it and watching it and analyzing it and being grateful for it and then translating it into paint. And Mm. for like six to eight classes go for three hours per session per subject. So in the morning we paint for three hours. Standing up the whole time, you're not allowed to sit down. Wow. Standing up, you have to be like three or four metres away from your easel to be in the side size position so that the, the figure is in the same size as the, the figure in your, in, on your canvas. Mm. So you're observing and then you're kind of doing a run-up and painting. So that, <laughs> Such a fantastic <laughs> visual. Yeah, you're like, you're like squinting from few, a few metres away and then you do this like little run-up to your easel. You put like a mark down. And then you go all the way back and you look yeah. at it and you go, is the, is the size of the head right? Is it, is it, you, and you observe like that. And so it's like, it's so slow. It's, it takes us five weeks to finish a, a figure painting. Mm. Five weeks, three hours a day. So it's a lot of work. Or sometimes we can do it in almost two weeks now. But, but it's like really, really, really slow and really, wow. really, really careful. And over that time, you know, in the afternoons we have we do the portrait for three hours, and then in the evenings we have like figure drawing, like to, we do pencil drawings and smaller smaller drawings to like warm us up because we've mm. been doing the same thing for for many weeks in a row. But yeah, it's it's all very very slow, very very patient, lots and lots of observing, and it takes a long time for things to click in that way because this when you start anything if you're learning a musical instrument or if you're learning to do ballet or if you're learning to be a level of excellence like this in any field you realize just how many things you have to think of doing mm. so there's there becomes a checklist of hundreds of things that you have to do on the painting and you have to be aware of them and you have to internalize them so it's it becomes intuitive eventually but during this training it doesn't feel intuitive it feels like a a slow car accident (laughs) (laughs) wow and so I mean do you ever get bored no actually it's like oh do you ever get bored of your partner it's like you fine (laughs) (laughs) it's like you the longer you look, and we never, we never look at anything that long anymore, even when doing the portrait, how often have you just looked at someone and done nothing else for three hours a day for like two or three weeks? Mm. So when you're looking at someone, things reveal themselves if you're looking at something for that long. And it becomes like infinitely interesting and like super intimate. Yeah. <laughs> like there are moments where the model, uh, like uh, somebody will be posing posing for a portrait and you'll be looking at their face and you're looking at them for not just, you're not just staring like a weirdo, you're looking at them so that you can capture their likeness. And then you'll realise something amazing about their, about them that you didn't realise like 20 hours ago. Mm. <laughs> and so it's really, it's really a beautiful and intimate process and it just keeps getting more and more interesting. And then the intimacy that the person sitting feels. So it feels incredibly special to them to be engaged in this kind of art making. And Mm. then if you're doing it right, they feel really connected 
to the whole process as well. So there's an amazing energy in the room. What blossoms out of it is pretty incredible. And what you observe about the human body, about people, about the small ways that people move and think. You can watch somebody thinking while they're posing for you. And they go through all of these thoughts in their head and you see all of that. It's amazing. It's just Mm. totally magic. And you miss that if you're not watching. Like you miss anything if you're not properly watching. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. And such a, you know, your comments around how busy life is now. I mean, certainly this year, 2020 has been very, very interesting to see the world kind of (laughs) come to a halt. (laughs) But coming back to the painting itself, what has painting like this taught you? It's given me a toolkit in order to faithfully paint something. So, oh, this is going to sound so lame, but it sort of feels like like you're given a superpower. And sometimes you have, we all have creative ideas like what if I, what if I made this and what if I produced it in this way? I want it to look like this. And often we'll go about, especially when if you're drawing or painting, often you'll be like, I want to make this amazing thing. And you will try to make it, but you don't have the tools to do it. Mm. And this teaches you the tools to do it. So you have total follow through. And this is why this this program is is so intense. This is why I chose to train in this way. It's so Mm. that when you have these cool ideas, you can pull them off. So I guess that's what, what is coming next. It's like pulling it off. (laughs) <laughs> pulling the making the bringing the ideas to life yeah incredible I remember you saying to me in a conversation a few weeks ago that everything you've ever needed to learn about life oh yeah you can learn through painting what did you mean by that talk to me a bit oh, about that yeah yeah so the first year that I was here was the most emotional year of my life <laughs> and I was confronted. I thought that I totally had everything figured out <laughs> and, uh, and that I thought I knew how to work. I thought I knew what focus was. I thought I knew what drawing was. I thought I knew what patience was. And I thought I knew how to make goals and to achieve them. But I don't know, when you're, when you're asked to be that still, when you're asked to, okay, you need to be standing up, paying attention, not just working, but you have to be paying attention and learning something new for this many hours a day, for 40, 50 hours a week. You have to be doing that and you have to come in on weekends and do it too if you need to. So to be asked that and to ask it of yourself is to put yourself into a very humble position of being very, very vulnerable for a long time. And mm. it just taught me so many things about about learning and about patience and about following through on things. And yeah, it's just like, I remember a friend of mine said that she loved it when the instructors said to her, check your values. And what they meant by that was that she had some things on her drawing too dark than others. And a value string is like from black to white, black, dark, gray, gray, and it goes up in a value string. And that's called like the values. But people would say, check your values as in your light, your organization of light to dark isn't correct on your drawing. But she always interpreted as check what's important to you. 
because mm. if you're asked to train like this every day and people, whether they're training for the Olympics or training in an instrument or whatever, it's like if you're asked to be good at anything, you are asked to figure out what's important to you in your life. So is watching Netflix for two hours at night more important than the two hours that you could be getting into practicing? Or what's your values there? Check them. So it's so confronting like that and it's a constant decisions that need to be made and sacrifices that need to be made for what's important to you. Mm. So that kind of stuff you'd learn as well. Wow. I often have clients come to me and they, you know, I want to write a book and and I hear a lot of people, I want to write a book, I want to write a book, it's on my bucket list. But a lot of people never get there, right, because it's discipline and it's hard work and it's being humble and, you know, needing to turn up to the page and, you know, certainly a very, very different type of art form but similar in some respects in terms of the discipline that's required. Totally. Especially yeah. when you get your work ripped apart by a ruthless editor, <laughs> <laughs> which is all part of the process. But what would you say to others that are looking to pursue that creative living and, you know, have that dream that's kind of bouncing around in, in their head and their heart? Yeah, this reminds me of so many conversations that we had earlier, but definitely one of them is maybe nobody else but you cares so much about what you're doing with your life. So maybe with the exception of your close family members and your partner and things like that, but nobody really cares that much what you do with your life, but you do. And let's say you want to write a book. I mean, seriously ask yourself what's holding you back. Like, is it fear of judgment? Because it so often is. When you want to do something, when you say, I I want to be a writer or I want to write a book or I I want to do this with my life, we just hold back because actually owning it means also being judged for it. Mm. And that is very, very scary to all of us. But the beautiful gift of owning it is that once you take responsibility, you have nobody else to blame yes. <laughs> for how it turns out. So it's to- totally up to you. And that is fantastic because then you can make it whatever you want. And it's very anxiety-inducing when you have that much choice in your life. Mm. But it's so incredibly empowering. And why not do it for that thrill? Why not do it because, you know, life is very short. You don't know how much time you have. So. Absolutely. It's the one thing we can't get back, isn't it? Yeah. So why not tell a story with it? Mm. Now, your latest collection is titled Still Life, The Art of Patience. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and why you chose that name. I think I know why now, though. <laughs> you've talked to me about the torture of, of actually <laughs> doing the work. Yeah, I called it a still life, obviously, because... We paint still lives. I have a few still lives in the show, but it's not just about that. It rang a bell with me because 2020 has been definitely, you might be feeling me on this, like it has been the time of stillness. And I mean, a lot has been moving without a doubt, but Mm. a lot of us have just been asked to, if we are able to, to just stay at home. The time we haven't actually been given a choice, but we do so because it's what you need to do this year in 2020. And so suddenly the stillness sets in, even though we might be 
stressed out and, and the anger or confusion or the worry, whatever you're feeling when you're stuck at home, but it's left a lot of extra time for contemplation and to let things really sink in. And letting things sink in is what I've slowly become pretty good at with, with this in respect to painting Mm, so mm. so yeah it just felt like it it really it really fit this is a still year yeah absolutely I completely resonate with that even in the (laughs) chaos of home learning children and even in the chaos of busyness and all of those things for you with kids (laughs) (laughs) no look it absolutely has and you know that I think we've all been called to slow down and there's a yeah. reason for that, you know, and I, I trust that there is a universal reason why all of this is happening. I mean, you ha- I have to personally, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful name. So where can people access this? You've got your online show that's launched or by the time this podcast airs, it will have launched. How can yeah. I access it? Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. It's on my website at hannahsutton.art. And yeah, it's all online there and all my work is available on there. It is launching officially on the 26th of September. So that's this Saturday, tomorrow. Mm. Yeah. So by the time we're live, it will be up. Fantastic. Now I have to, just one final question, Hannah, I have to ask you Mm -hmm. about COVID-19 has absolutely kind of changed 2020, as we've both been saying, but you've lived really through this pandemic. And I mean, it's still going on across the world, but in the heart of where a lot of it kind of happened after China initially had the outbreak in Italy. What was it like when that was occurring for you as an Australian overseas? And what's it Mm -hmm. like now? Yeah, good question. We followed the news in Wuhan when it first was happening. And I remember back in like January when the news started breaking out, we were watching people's apartment buildings being welded shut in Wuhan. And we thought, what is going on? Like, is this coming here? And it was crazy that of all the places in the world, it hit just north of where I was living. So it hit Lombardy and Milan and then started trickling down. And we started hearing, you know, all these accounts and and seeing people from the north coming south. And, you know, people were just jumping on trains and leaving Milan, even though lockdown was starting. And we were all like, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you community-minded about this? People were... The pasta aisle was completely bought out in all oh, of yeah. the shops. Oh, look, it was here in Melbourne too. So I so can funny. only imagine in Italy. I, <laughs> I couldn't, get, I still some days struggle to get tin tomatoes, you know. Like, yeah. what the yeah, hell is going on? Complete, there were just nonas in the supermarkets just like loading up with, with like all these supplies. <laughs> and, and you... Yeah, and there were these kind of awkward signs about social distancing, but people were just swarming in to the supermarkets to buy food and there was this very kind of ominous fear that was in the air and it was very clear that the first pandemic that happens is fear and what people do when they're afraid. And then the virus is another thing completely, but I think that the worst the worst virus appeared to be fear and appeared to be, you know, I remember my boyfriend getting harassed at work for wearing, not harassed, but like people were really upset at him 
for wearing a mask and gloves to work and wow. sanitizing hands at the beginning. And he was like trying to be careful because he was really on top of the news about what was going on. And he was staying on top of all of the epidemiologists' reports about what you should be doing. And yeah, he he was on top of it. But he, people were really angry at him for wearing the mask. And wow, anyway, very, yeah. And the lockdown happened in kind of weird kind of levels where at first we were like, maybe the school will have to close for two weeks to okay, we have to just temporarily shut down the school while this thing passes. And then we were in lockdown for just over 11 weeks straight. Yeah, yeah. And what you guys are feeling in Melbourne, I can't even imagine with the second lockdown, you know, how mm. how incredibly frustrating that is to go back into it because then you know kind of what you're up for, but you just know that you can't hang on by your fingernails for that long. But I felt that it was time to get busy. As a business owner, I was like, I need to, I need to work. I need to do all of this, these things. Whereas my partner was like, this is just a time to wait and a time to reflect and a time to yeah. think. And yeah. I think he was so right about that, that, you know, we're still careful. What it's like now is, you know, we're allowed out, out and around. We can we can travel around Europe, which is maybe, I think that's a bit dangerous, but we're still wearing face masks. We don't have to wear them outside, but yeah, we have to wear them inside and sanitize our hands and keep a, a meter, a meter and a half distance. But the hard thing is, this is a very, very jam-packed country with a lot of people who are very used to being close to each other. Yeah, it's such a tactile culture, right? Like yeah, everybody's kissing touching. and hugging. And I mean, <laughs> Italian culture is uh, uh, one of the reasons I love Italy is it's so beautiful like that. Everyone loves each other so much. Yeah, and, and you just hugging. see like there's a lot of people and the streets are narrow. So how do you, you can't avoid people like you can in Australia. It's really Mm. easy to just, I'm just going to go 50 k's west and there'll be nobody. Whereas in Italy, it's just tiny little streets and school has gone back. So at school time, when school breaks out, you just see like 200 parents crammed into a little tiny cobblestone street ready to pick up their kids and nobody's Nobody's wearing masks because it's outside and no distancing because it's it's too hard to do that at that time. And so I don't know, I'm not a fortune teller, but yeah, it's a bit worrying to see that after everything we've been through this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, yeah. I mean, we're very lucky in Melbourne in that we're starting to come out of it. It has been an incredibly, you know, a very, very challenging year and certainly the curfews and some of the decisions that are being made around keeping people locked inside, it's made it extremely hard. But also I think Melburnians have been amazing in that we're quite a complicit culture, I've realised, and there is that sense of community and even though people are kind of devastated Mm -hmm. and they're pretty over it, they're very over it actually. I think people are very frustrated (laughs) now. It's been We're in week 12 at the moment for this lockdown, not counting the first lockdown. No, 12 weeks, sorry, in total across okay. the two lockdowns. But I think You're people tired. just know we have to do it. We have to do it. This is something we have to do. And and the alternative, you know, the stories that we saw in the news of pop-up hospitals in Spain and in Italy, you mm-hmm. know, that just scared people into, I think, realising that, you know, especially when we were seeing the 
terrible and just devastating outbreaks and deaths in aged yeah. care and that sort of thing. So, yep. There, um, I mean, just thinking that there are places, there are little villages in Italy up north that have almost nobody in them because there's an aging aging community and they were hit particularly hard and there's almost no mm. one left. Oh and gosh. That, how crazy is that? So there's never been more of a, a reason to be community-minded and it's difficult to do in a city. It's difficult to think of people who maybe you don't, you know, you've never met or they've, they've just down the road but, you know, you don't have anything to do with them. But, yeah, it's the year of community-mindedness. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a good reminder that we are all connected whether we like it or not. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Hannah, that has just been so fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your story and please keep sharing your work as well. I'll make sure I pop the links to Hannah's new online show and her website, hannahsutton.art, for mm-hmm. anyone that's listening and, and interested to check that out. It's truly spectacular work. You should be very proud of yourself. Thank you, Vanessa. That's really kind of you. And thanks for the chat. It's been lovely to speak with you and I hope you and everybody connected with you and all of Melbourne really stays stays safe and healthy. Thanks, Hannah. That's great. So if you haven't already, make sure you jump onto therightremark.com and sign up for my mailing list so you never miss an episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to rate, review and share this podcast episode with your friends in the podcast app. Thank you everyone for your support and for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I look forward to talking to you next week.